You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Awesome. Well, today we are joined by Stephen Wheeler and Amanda Akerd Vira. Um, I want to thank you both for sharing your knowledge and expertise uh, with us in this interview today. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be here. Absolutely. You two co-authored the Occupational Therapy Practice Guidelines for Adults with Traumatic Brain Injury and continue to work um, at the tip of the spear, I like to say, directing and conducting research related to traumatic brain injury at West Virginia University. What really motivated each of you to focus your practice and scholarship on traumatic brain injury? Well, I think Amanda and I probably have different paths in terms of, uh, though we have very, some very similar experiences. Uh, for me, I started out in um, working in mental health and really enjoyed the mental health uh, areas of occupational therapy. Uh, I actually started in forensic mental health, so we were, I was dealing with a lot of uh, uh, behavioral challenges and and um, and some of the, the legal issues that that uh, can that we can be faced with when people are struggling uh, to succeed in the community. And, and um, so when I, when I moved kind of away from mental health and I went into working with uh, individuals with various uh, physical uh, disabilities, traumatic brain injury really uh, captured me because it, it kind of encompassed all of the things I really enjoyed. Obviously there's, there's the mental health pieces of traumatic brain injury, but also the cognitive and physical and family and all kinds of diff- the, the complexity of it. And it really, I like the challenge of it. I like the ability to, to make an impact on a on a issue that's hopefully very impactful from a societal standpoint as well. So when I, I ventured into it, and I have been doing that for about uh, the last 25 years, either uh, clinical work or teaching or research. I love that. And, and what about for you, Amanda? What kind of led you down um, this path of, of studying and, and working with people who have traumatic brain injury? So I initially started working at an inpatient uh, rehabilitation hospital, and there I didn't start out on traumatic brain injury, but within about six months, I had a rotation on that team. And as soon as I went to that unit, um, I just found that that was a a really nice place where I could actually contribute as an occupational therapist because it was very holistic, and it was someone who would have a traumatic experience usually. So most of the individuals that we had were uh, pretty, you know, significantly impaired. It's very severe. Uh, they've been in car accidents and falls and things like that. And I actually got to work with a lot of students that were actually, you know, located um, in and around this university area um, that had had those. And we were helping them to try to get back to being independent in everyday life. Um, so from there, I actually got to start working in our outpatient day treatment program for TBI. Um, so I've worked along the severity level from very acute, uh, low functioning to working and trying to get back into the community, return to school, go back to work, into those things. Um, so really, it's just, a, I feel like it's a very rewarding population, even though sometimes, you know, it can be very sad. Um, but as a therapist, to be able to work with the families, be able to work with their caregivers, be able to work with them to regain function that they tragically lost very quickly due to this injury, I think it's been a very rewarding part. Um, I've also found that there's a need in occupational therapy for more on traumatic brain injury and in the areas that we can contribute to. Yeah, absolutely. You both mentioned how 
how impactful traumatic brain injury can be, how it can be tragic and, and traumatic and the implications of a TBI can be huge for individuals. Why do you feel it's so important for occupational therapy professionals to generate, synthesize, and apply evidence related to interventions um, for adults with traumatic brain injury? Well, I think, Matt, that more than ever across all areas of clinical practice that we work in, therapists have to be prepared to defend the things they do with by the evidence. So in, in just, just from the standpoint of uh, justifying what you're doing with either payer sources or, or referral sources or members of the interdisciplinary team. I think it's I think it's central to be able to speak to the evidence just to just to sort of justify the approaches you're taking and really building your your professional brand around the the uh, area of practice that you're that you're working in. I th I think for us, it, it and as we work on projects like we're we're going to talk about with you today, it's really about building your toolkit. So with, with traumatic brain injury, it is not a recipe-driven or a pathway-driven process with somebody because every injury is so unique, uh, this combination of who the person was before with the nature of their injury, which is often, often very complex with their with their environmental supports and, and, and goals, where people live, their insurance. There's so many things that factor in to the recovery process that the more tools you have in your toolkit, the better prepared you are to address, you know, not just what what might be a, a really good starting point, but where to shift gears when you have to shift gears in the process. So hopefully, um, like a lot of things, the more you know, the better set up you are to manage various circumstances. Hopefully, in a case like this, uh, you're also in a better position to defend uh, the decisions that you make and the things that you do. I love that. I love that perspective and, and how important it is to be informed and, and caught up in, in evidence supporting interventions to justify what we do and also to be able to treat a, a wide range of clients who maybe are experiencing TBI in different ways. Um, could, could you introduce us a little bit to some of the functional implications um, that TBI can have on, on people? When we when we talk about what traumatic brain injury is, it's often defined as a bump, blow, or jolt to the head. That's what you'll see in a lot of the typical definitions that disrupts normal brain function. So there's there's this impact of some kind, and then there's this secondary influence on the the way the brain is processing information, and that goes from anywhere from mild traumatic brain injury, which which includes a concussion, uh, which we, we we certainly hear a lot about today to uh, all the way to severe traumatic brain injury uh, where people are um, lose consciousness and maybe in a coma for a, a long period of time. So it, it can be very difficult to talk about the functional implications to any one person uh, or at least the, this, you know, to this huge category. But certainly what we do know is, is there is this, this interplay of cognitive impacts, physical impacts, psychosocial, emotional impacts, perceptual impacts. So we do know that within any one injury, a lot of different areas are, can be involved. And that is, so to understand somebody's functional implications, it's really this mix of what's going on with what are the things that you continue to have difficulty doing. And, and certainly in cases of mild traumatic brain injury, the period of recovery can be relatively short and the impacts 
uh, I don't want to minimize concussion, but but certainly compared to more severe cases, which can be lifelong conditions, you can as as a therapist, you can you you never quite know what you'll be faced with in any given case. I've worked with concussion, which uh, years later the individual is still struggling, and I've worked with more severe classifications where recoveries as been incredibly good. So, so you just never know from case to case, but, but certainly what you need to be prepared to do is to be able to evaluate and treat the different categories of, of impairments and, and that you might see and ultimately what their, their impact would be on, on function and function really to the person is defined to the things that, that they want and need to do, uh, which can be also differ from person to person in terms of where people are in terms of their life cycle and all the different roles that they might have. And I love that emphasis on on evaluating and treating the the client and, and keeping everything person centered. Um, how do you both, Stephen and Amanda, really approach this process, or how would you describe the OT process really for adults who have a traumatic brain injury? Well, something Amanda and I talk about a lot is is the notion of client centeredness. Client centered practice is one of the defining characteristics of occupational therapy. When you think of a condition like traumatic brain injury, which is so, uh, has such variation from person to person, client-centeredness is, is really, to me, the essential foundation of assessment and intervention. So that's sitting down with somebody, learning about their injury, the functional impacts, environmental supports, what their goals are, where they where they are in the stages of, of life, opinions of families, support support by family, the presence of friends. Uh, there's so many different things. So, so the the client centeredness piece, I always emphasize that first. Within traumatic brain injury, we see persons with traumatic brain injury in pretty much every setting that we would work in. So, uh, just off the top of my head, traditional acute care, rehab hospitals, schools, uh, outpatient facilities, home home health, community health. Uh, work settings, mental health settings within the criminal justice system. In terms of the process for adults and occupational therapy, we are likely to touch paths with someone with traumatic brain injury, regardless of the setting that we work in. So I think that we're going to talk today kind of about some of the standard things, but but really um, the client-centeredness of it really comes first. And the ultimate goal of maximizing functional independence is central across all those areas of recovery. Depending on where somebody is in their recovery, uh, the uh, the interventions that we might use could differ quite a bit, and they would reflect the goals uh, and the needs of the of that particular client and family. And generally, the process is is more like a roller coaster than something that goes straight up in progression. So you certainly have to be very flexible in your approach and re- and ready to, to to make adjustments both as the individuals. Um, presentation changes, or maybe it starts to stabilize and things like that, and you need to you need to go in a certain way. But you certainly have to um, be prepared to manage the ups and downs of recovery. Absolutely, it's, it seems that progress and recovery is always fluctuating and and very rarely just linear um, in in any direction. And before we dive into the specifics of the practice guidelines and and more information on interventions for traumatic brain injury, I wanted to ask, what are some of the typical issues that arise in these different categories of performance that you mentioned earlier? Arousal, alertness, cognition, even 
motor, visual, psychosocial impairments? What, what are some of the typical issues that adults with TBI may experience? Well, that's a great question, Matt. And it's, it's a tough one to answer because it's hard to use the word typical and traumatic brain injury just because um, every case is so unique. The issues that any one person would present with it, like I said, it's kind of a combination of the complexities of the injuries to the brain and the unique personality and characteristics of the, of the person. But I'll try and kind of take a crack at each area uh, that you mentioned in your in your question. So I think the first thing that you mentioned was arousal. Certainly with people with moderate to severe injuries, uh, they're, they're going to experience some loss of consciousness, and that's part of the definition of the severity of those injuries, with longer duration reflective of increasing injury severity. So there's an accepted progression of recovery from coma. We call it the Rancho Los Amigos scale. And it can help providers rate the cognitive changes after brain injury uh, once someone begins to wake from coma. Within that, there's, there's, uh, there's no timeline for that recovery, and that can create a lot of uh, frustration for family and friends uh, looking to always trying to wonder, you know, how long are they going to be at this stage? How long? It certainly makes the process of recovery very unpredictable um, from, a, from a cognitive standpoint. You mentioned alertness. Decreased alertness following brain injury is very common. It's obvious in cases like where I just mentioned, where there's clear loss of consciousness, but it's evident even in for mild injuries or concussions. Uh, I can remember um, growing up playing contact sports and going back to the, the sidelines of the bench and, and being told I had my bell rung. I think that was a, a term that uh, was, was used early, early on uh, as we started to understand concussion uh, to try and sort of capture that experience. But certainly alert, alertness can fluctuate, especially early in recovery. But it's a necessary precursor to, to cognitive functioning. So obviously, um, you need to be alert to uh, learn and socialize and perform uh, daily activities. So alertness is really, uh, really important. And tied to that, as I mentioned, is, is cognitive impairments. We often associate brain injury with difficulties with attention and memory. And there's also a higher level cognitive skills. We call them executive cognitive functions. Uh, and these, these would be things like self-awareness, problem-solving, planning, goal-setting. They would be things that are really necessary for a successful performance, especially of adult roles. You mentioned visual, visual um, impairments. There are studies that indicate as many as 90% of people that have a brain injury experience some form of dis- visual dysfunction. That can be, uh, the, the, the types of visual impacts can be really diverse. Uh, it can range from issues with visual acuity, blurred vision, fo- eye focusing, eye movements, and that can range all the way to things like motion and light sensitivity, uh, visual memory, and uh, visual field losses, which could be incredibly impairing. Motor impairments, um, again, we uh, another thing that we often associate with traumatic brain injury, obviously it's, it's, it's easier to see the, the motor manifestations than maybe the cognitive or the visual things. Motor impairments can present in different ways. I mean, certainly when you think about how traumatic brain injuries happen, so just the, the, the types of uh, things that can cause traumatic brain injury, like motor vehicle accidents and falls. Uh, it's common to see secondary injuries, such as bone fractures, uh, that can impact movement. Damage to the brain can cause a host of movement issues that can affect the ability to do things like talk, walk, swallow, uh, complete tasks requiring fine and gross motor abilities. Those are things that we often see in OT when people are doing um, activities of daily living. And then we, we see uh, problems with muscle tone. Um, so you might see... Um, high muscle tone, which we refer to as spasticity, uh, or lo- low muscle tone, uh, such as uh, flaccidity uh, at the extreme end of that. 
And then the psychosocial implications, that's something that uh, Amanda and I have spent a lot of time working on lately in terms of, of the work that we've been doing. And the psychosocial impacts can be really uh, considerable. Depression is common, but there's a number of other things, uh, irritability, lack of motivation, uh, fluctuating emotions, things that can make the rehabilitation process very difficult. And also difficulty with, with, uh, with, with caregivers and families and you know people that you're, you're going through the progression of recovery and recovering from brain injury is hard work. And when you're struggling with depression, it can be really difficult to um, energize yourself to, to do that. We talk a lot in brain injury about uh, self-awareness and the developing development of self-awareness, learning about the things that you uh, may not be able to do anymore, maybe coming to um, realize things that might be long-term. And the emergence of self-awareness, while it is helpful in terms of your recovery, because when you, you know the things that you need to work on, you, you're better positioned to do it. But it's also a time when you're more likely that that realization can also contribute to feelings of depression. And, and in, in some cases, you can see aggression uh, with the fluctuating emotions and, and, and obvious frustrations. And that can obviously be very imp impactful as well uh, on your relationships and, and, and to be able to recover in, in the community and work and other settings that you might, uh, might want to be able to succeed in. Absolutely. Tra traumatic brain injury can truly be life-changing. And there's so many areas of performance that um, can be impacted uh, it really highlights how important it is to be informed of evidence-based practice uh, to help people who have experienced uh, TBI in their rehabilitation and to engage um, and, and perform their occupations uh, how, how they most want to. Yeah, um, absolutely. Let's, let's go ahead and, and dive into the practice guideline, uh, which gives us a great insight into into um, these evidence-based strategies. Um, it's available on the AOTA store. Um, I think there's also a continuing education course linked or related to the practice guidelines. Um, uh, Amanda, how is the practice guideline publication organized and how would you really recommend practitioners use it? Um, so we are actually working on the new one that is... Um going to be coming out here really soon. It's actually under revisions right now. Uh, so first, I'd like to kind of give an overview of the um, systematic project um, that resulted in the Occupational Therapy Practice Guidelines for Adults with Traumatic Brain Injury. Uh, so this project had six focus questions, and the focus questions were about the effectiveness of interventions to improve arousal and alertness, of interventions to address motor, vestibular balance, um, the third one was on cognitive processing activity, um, occupation-based interventions to improve cognitive functioning. The fourth one was to address visual impairments and visual perception. The fifth one was to address psychosocial, behavioral, and emotional skills. Um, and all of those are about improving occupational performance or participation in activities. And then the sixth one was um, evidence for the effectiveness of interventions for caregivers of personal TBI that facilitated participation in that caregiver role. I wanted to bring that up first because I think it'll help um, as we kind of describe what um, or how the publication is organized. Um, so the first part of the publication will include kind of a summary and overview of what traumatic brain injury is, um, the different severity levels, some demographic um, information, some stats, and then we will actually start moving into 
what are the goals of this practice guideline and our clinical recommendations. And the way it was set up was to make it um, a little bit easier for clinicians to kind of find exactly what those interventions are. And so the way it's set up or organized is that there's two case studies that will be presented. And in those case studies, we um, built them around the different interventions that were found to be um, effective or have strong evidence um, to moderate evidence to support those types of interventions. When you go into each of the case studies, um, it actually has us go through the evaluation process um, and then what the findings from our um, evaluation was, the different assessments that were completed. Um, and then we actually developed kind of an intervention plan using the interventions that are included in these guidelines. Um, they're, they're comprehensive, meaning they cross those six questions, um, but just know that those are the primary interventions that we're going to find is based on those six questions. And then each of the case studies will kind of have like an outcome of what those are. At the end of the uh, publication is you are going to get all of the articles that were included um, in the study, um, and it will describe their study. It will be clinical recommendations table, and it will describe just a little bit about their study and how strong the evidence is for each of those. The way that we are hoping that they would be intended to use is, um, you know, as part of the OT process, we go through our evaluation, we complete our assessments, and we do our intervention planning. These are meant to be a guide um, as well as support the different interventions that we use. The thing that we want uh, individuals to understand is, though, that it's just one piece of it. Um, so we, you know, they still need to do their assessments. Every you know, person that has a TBI is unique. Um, the things that you may find may be different. Um, but the guide will actually serve as somewhere to kind of start to look at the interventions. The nice thing about this um, practice guideline is there's going to be some algorithms and so based on what your patient or client is presenting, whether it's mild, moderate, severe, or they have whichever type of impairment, it's actually kind of a, a guide to help you which interventions they found to be effective. Um, they're very visual, so you can actually kind of follow different you know, lines and arrows, and um, we feel that will be very helpful for clinicians to find interventions that are effective for each of the different impairments. I love that. It sounds like a very user-friendly design. As a newer practitioner, I find, you know, algorithms and uh, clinical recommendation tables very helpful uh, just in, you know, building my own expertise and, and the ability to, to practice um, with a, a solid evidence-based. Um, what are some of the clinical recommendations or interventions that were found to be most strongly supported by evidence for this population? So what initially happened for each of the questions, they had a team of researchers that were looking through the articles and to be included in a systematic review. As those were kind of determined which ones were going to be used, um, and they did this by reviewing, you know, abstracts and things at first to full text articles, um, we completed an evidence table. And in that evidence table, you kind of look for themes of different interventions. So there may have been, you know, two or three articles that touched on, you know, the different components or different types of interventions within a question. So once those were done and we put the question or the articles that we were going to use, we actually then would give them a level of evidence from one to five. And one is where you would have your um, randomized control kind of trial studies all the way to five where case studies and things like that. And um, we primarily only have level ones, twos, and threes in this practice 
this guideline. The case studies and things were not included. Once we gave them a level of evidence, um, we had to give them a strength of evidence. And they were either given a strong, moderate, or low strength of evidence. And to be considered strong, you had to have two or more level one studies, and they needed to be like randomized controlled trials and things like that. To be moderate, they at least had to have one like that. And they may also have other supporting things like a level two or a level three. So for this systematic review for each question, some of the questions had evidence that showed that it was strong. Um, some only had moderate strength of evidence. So for the one about arousal and alertness, there was strong evidence that family delivered multimodal sensory stimulation. And that means you're using a, a variety or a couple of different uh, sensory stimulations like touch, sound, smell. Um, but that was found to improve awareness and arousal. And they also found that unimodal auditory stimulation with familiar voices telling structured, familiar stories to improve arousal and alertness. Both of those kind of have prescribed the time frames in which those were found to be most effective. For cognitive impairments, there were several that were found to be strong. Um, Multi-component cognitive programs improved um, things like executive functioning. Cognitive interventions, uh, there were some about that applied to active duty, duty service members with mild TBI post-concussion um, that, you, that you work on interventions to improve cognitive and emotional symptoms uh, simultaneously. There's also a lot of evidence about that was strong for occupation-based strategy training by itself or in combination with an interdisciplinary intervention. Um, and that was also found to improve uh, symptoms such as impairments with prospective memory um, and also help them with goal attainment. Um, there was also some strong evidence with the psychosocial, behavioral, and emotional impairment question. Um, education and skill training, um, that included one-to-one -one training and outpatient programs. Um, it was found to be effective with improving quality of life, psychosocial functioning, and social relationships. And then in caregiver, um, supporting our caregivers, that they found that there was strong evidence to support inpatient or community-based caregiver interventions either through face-to-face -face or telephone, um, it improved overall health and well-being. There was also strong evidence for online or telephone interventions to improve knowledge and skills like problem-solving and communicating for individuals who provide care for, for people with TBI. I love that. Thank you, Amanda. There's uh, it, it sounds like there's some really strong evidence for interventions. Um, as, as we all know, in the quest to apply evidence to practice, uh, it's, it's never as simple as looking at what the evidence is for and then just selecting it and putting it into practice. Um, as we've discussed, TBI can cause a wide spectrum of issues. How would you recommend a practitioner approach kind of chart review and assessment to really guide their treatment and their planning of, of what interventions to use? A lot of time when you are evaluating someone with a traumatic brain injury, they may or may not be able to participate in that, um, you know, by answering questions and, and things like that. And they may or may not have family um, or friends or things that can kind of fill in the gaps or give you some information. Um, and that's just because of the nature of TBI. As Dr. Willard mentioned about all the impairments with, you know, arousal and alertness. Um, and cognitive functioning. So sometimes we actually are more dependent on getting information um, from the chart, and uh, we would recommend using the occupational profile as you do the chart review. 
um, so that that can kind of guide it, what information that you want to gather, whether it be from the chart or from other individuals who um, are able to help with that, um, such as family or friends. I would approach it just like we would um, with any other valuation. Um, you know, evaluating someone with a traumatic brain injury isn't any different in that realm, um, but it could involve, be more complex, involve more assessments that you may have to do for the variety of impairments that is noted um, during the evaluation. And then you're going to use those findings to help and, and use clinical easing um, and client center practice to develop an intervention plan. And this guideline will help provide some direction based on the severity, based on the impairments or the dysfunction that you clinically reason through their eval. I love that. Those are such excellent um, recommendations and considerations to keep in mind. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field? Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description. And support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. You both are so experienced in providing skilled therapy interventions to this population. I want to ask for some clinical recommendations that you would give the practitioners related to each of these issues that, that we've been d- discussing. Um, what, what clinical recommendations or kind of tips or tricks would you give to practitioners about applying interventions that address arousal and alertness? When I'm working with someone early on, so in the first 72 hours, um, you want to be doing it a couple times a day, at least for the first few weeks. After you get to about one month or a year um, that the brain injury actually occurred, um, you may be increasing the time. You may be doing it more times a day, um, but you want to leave at least two hours between sessions. And they recommend using uh, unimodal auditory stimulation with familiar, familiar voices um, to do that kind of uh, sensory stem. Um, they found a lot of evidence that familiar voices, family voices, were more effective. Um, and then if you actually recall, you know, combine the auditory with some other sense, um, like a familiar smell or a touch or something like that, that that was also found to be effective at improving um, arousal and alertness. I, I think I would just want to go through this list and keep asking you for these wonderful clinical recommendations and insights. Um, I think they're going to be so helpful for our listeners. Uh, so le- let's go ahead and transition to motor impairments. What, what clinical re- recommendations would you give about motor um, or interventions uh, designed to address motor impairments? So there were two interventions that were found to have moderate evidence to improve motor impairments. Um, So one of them was using community-based group physical activity interventions, and this included things like balance training, aerobic exercise, and strengthening. Um, And some of the recommendations was 30 to 90 minutes, two to three times a week for at least six to eight weeks. Um, There was also some evidence for virtual reality, and that could improve, um, you know, things like gait, speed, balance, and functional movements with adults with mild to moderate TBI specifically. I'm listening to these recommendations and it sounds like the practice guidelines are so helpful to really take 
practice a, a step further. Um, I think most practitioners would be aware that interventions focused on arousal and alertness or motor impairments are uh, important to consider and, and include in their um, in their treatment of clients. Uh, but these guidelines really help make sure you're implementing it correctly at the right frequency for the right duration at the right point in, in someone's care continuum. Same question about cognitive impairments. What are the recommendations associated uh, with interventions designed to address cognitive impairments? There was a lot of strong evidence for some of the cognitive interventions. Um, They improved specific cognitive outcomes and um, cognitive emotional symptoms. Um, So I listed a couple above about the strong, some of them being working on the skill um, through strategy training. Um, So that was one that had a lot of evidence for and also the multi-component cognitive program. So the intensity of that intervention specifically was two hours every other week for eight weeks, or they could do two 45-minute groups and one 60-minute individual session three times a week for 12 weeks. There was also moderate um, evidence to to support using like telephone-based problem-solving interventions, and that was found to help improve sleep for adults with mild TBI. There was also evidence, moderate evidence, to support errorless learning to improve ADL performance and also accelerate skill acquisition. They used, um, in some of the studies, there was moderate evidence to support technology-supported task-habit learning approaches, um, and that helped to reduce the prompting or the cueing that was needed to complete um, different activities. Well, let's let's keep on trucking. What about the recommendations for vision and visual uh, perceptual impairments? So with vision therapy, uh, it was primarily moderate evidence found, and this was, uh, when appropriate, like practitioners could provide outpatient individualized vision therapy um, for mild TBI. And what they found was that if they did it one hour, one to five times a week for five to 15 weeks, it could improve virgence, uh, saccadic eye movements, visual attention, and visually evoked potential. That's great. These are excellent snapshots of of, um, how the practice guidelines can really uh, give that blueprint or jumping off point for uh, intervention design and and planning. What about with uh, psychosocial, behavioral, or emotional impairments? What recommendations uh, would you give from the guideline here? So psychosocial, behavioral, and emotional impairments had strong evidence to support education and skills training. Um, they included one-on-one instructional training and outpatient programs, um, but, or by teaching compensatory strategies for TBI related to symptoms. Um, they found this across the spectrum, whether it was mild to severe TBI, and it improved quality of life, psychosocial functioning, and social relationships. And so you saw 30 minutes to one hour, one time a week, or one time bi-weekly for up from anywhere from eight weeks to six months was effective. Um, provided strong uh, evidence to support um, those type of education and skills training interventions to improve psychosocial, behavioral, or emotional impairments with the end goal of improving occupational performance. There was also moderate strength of evidence to support um, group education. So having individuals um, with other people um, that had a TBI, so in the group kind of setting, Um, And this was also effective for mild to severe to improve anger management, social participation, and psychosocial well-being. And once again, it was one hour, one time a week for 12 weeks up to a year, they found these interventions to be effective to improve the psychosocial behavioral emotional impairments. 
the evidence is there and, and it's clear that occupational therapy can help people um, achieve or, or return uh, to a desired level of occupational performance. Um, what about interventions specifically for caregivers, for people with TBI? What recommendations would you give there? Um, yes, and I also had two more for the other one. Sorry, I was just flipping my pages. Um, oh, no problem. Go ahead with those. <laughs> that was also moderate strength of evidence to support um, goal-focused interventions. And in those, they were looking at um, some of them being group or individuals, and it was also for individuals with mild to severe TBI. And they found that, you know, sometimes just a little bit of participation to very um, extensive, whereas longer sessions over longer weeks was also effective. One of the last ones I'm going to mention for this one was physical activity. And so they did find moderate evidence that uh, we practitioners should consider or could consider using individual aerobic and or high intensity activity interventions. And primarily they were looking at mild to uh, moderate um, TBI. Um, also, individuals who had chronic TBI, so they had had it for some time, um, and something as, you know, as little as 30 minutes, one to five times a week for one to 12 weeks was found to be effective at improving um, the psychosocial behavioral emotion uh, impairments associated with the TBI. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let's go ahead and transition now to that uh, caregiver question. What, what recommendations do you have um, for designing uh, interventions for caregivers? So the caregiver one, um, primarily what this question looked at was the interventions to help facilitate the role in caregiving. You know, some of the evidence is about, you know, how to help the caregiver have overall help, better health and well-being, um, because in turn, that if they are better taken care of, um, then hopefully they can foster overall well-being um, for the client. Um, as well. And so the two main things that they found in this one was there was strong evidence to support individual inpatient or community-based caregiver interventions. And they found this through either face-to-face or telephone um, and actually groups, too, of other people that are caregivers um, to improve overall health and well-being. The next area of strong evidence is with family-based interventions. And so this included having the caregiver and the person with TBI in the same sessions. And sometimes it was at home, sometimes it was online, sometimes it was in a group setting face-to-face. But they worked on skill building, um, things such as improving communication, problem solving, and strategy development. Um, they also directed interventions to improve the overall um, health and well-being of the caregiver. And a lot of times this was done a couple times a week. Um, bi-weekly or monthly for up to six to nine months. There was also moderate evidence of caregiver and spouse-specific training. So when appropriate, practitioners could provide face-to-face or group interventions for a caregiver and their spouse to work on their relationship. Um, so there was moderate evidence to support that also I love the extent of, of that evidence that's in, included in these practice guidelines. I think a lot of times uh, when discussing interventions for caregivers, the first thought and kind of the easy thought uh, throughout the medical system is, oh, education. I'll help educate this caregiver about the condition. Um but really, this takes it so much further to include them, to encourage them, to ensure that their needs and, and their occupational well-being um, is, is a focus of intervention as well. 
Um, and I think that can be really powerful. Let's go ahead and transition now to the overall purpose of these practice guidelines um, and also the overall purpose of this show uh, to help translate evidence to practice. Um, what are some clinical reasoning considerations that practitioners should keep in mind when consulting the practice guidelines? Obviously, you can tell from Amanda's summary of the evidence, there is a lot of, there's a lot of information there. And I think to a point that you made earlier, Matt, is, is one of those considerations is thinking about, you know, where is, where is my client in the continuum? Where are they? What are these specific issues that they're presenting with? And, and sometimes uh, with traumatic brain injury, what you can learn is where you see them in that continuum. For example, if I'm seeing somebody in an outpatient clinic and I'm looking at some of that chart review information, the presentation that I might get could be dramatically different than what is showing up in that chart. There, there are elements of traumatic brain injury that can be a little bit uh, slower to um, or, or maybe become permanent in terms of uh, somebody's ability to overcome them. And there are some other things that, that, can, that tend to remediate fairly quickly. So it can be very difficult. And, and when you think about issues like motor recovery versus psychosocial recovery, listen to the evidence, you think about things like you know, physical exercise. Well, physical exercise or physical activity can show up in a lot of ways. And one of the areas where it's highlighted within the practice guidelines is not in the motor recovery piece, but in the psychosocial piece. So the impacts of physical activity on emotional well-being. So I think when you, um, when you think about the purpose of the practice guideline, I think you need to, to kind of try and embrace the evidence that's there, obviously, and, and try and, and, and look at, you know, the strong and the moderate uh, evidence to support your decisions, but but also just staying flexible to what you're doing and recognizing that the conditions will change, unlikely to be very symmetrical across different different areas. Some places could be major uh, areas that, that are impacting performance, other things less so. So I think flexibility is critical. And I think just just really getting to know your person. You can take the strongest evidence and apply it with your client, but if they don't embrace it, you're not going to have a good outcome. So you've got it. You've still got to remember the importance of therapeutic relationship building, motivating your client, and you've got to find the things that if they're either not ready to work on something, maybe they have a different different things or different priorities to them. You've got to be listening to them at all times because sometimes a word that we hear a lot in, in traumatic brain injury rehabilitation is non-compliance, and I really caution our audience to to be careful about about that term. It's people are generally non-compliant to things that they're not interested in doing, and I think it's on the therapist to really make the connections on how you take the evidence and up and link it to the interests. And I think if you just go too evidence based and you forget the interests, then you're you're not going to be you're not going to have the success of an invested client. And when you're dealing with things like maybe you're dealing with frustration tolerance depression and and anxiety and you know the, the more you can connect with your client you, the more you can build the relationship and channel the evidence through their interests the more success you're going to have in terms of their ability to engage in, in the activities that you're doing absolutely I, I love that emphasis on on being client-centered and really at the center of being client-centered is being centered on a client's interests. Um, I hope I didn't say centered too much and get lost in I translation there. I don't think there, you but... can say it enough. In, in case, Matt. <laughs> and, and I love that point. I love that point. You know, it, it makes me think 
these are titled practice guidelines for a reason. You know, they're not titled practice laws. Correct. They're not meant to be followed to the letter, yeah. um, but they're meant to be a support and to assist practitioners to practice at the top of their license when working with the people on their own caseload. Good point. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to ask if you could share a case study, a case study uh, now, either from the practice guideline or from your own professional experience that includes using an evidence-based intervention to help a client achieve a positive outcome. So within the upcoming practice guidelines, uh, we have two case studies, cases that from Amanda and I that we've worked with. One, one that's a little bit different from that. So I'll refer to, for, to one that's not that. Uh, one that that uh, that comes to mind to me that I often reference when I do presentations is a is a young man that I worked with. He was 21 years old. He was a college student. Uh, he suffered a uh, a severe traumatic brain injury while he was in college. He was um, in a coma for um, for approximately three months. So he, obviously a very severe injury. He comes out of the coma. He's very long recovery. Deficits pretty much in every area that we've discussed in this in this podcast today. And so when I got him, he was over a year post-injury. He was very frustrated. He, he made significant cognitive, er, cognitive improvement, significant motor improvement. I mean, when I was reviewing the, the chart, I wasn't sure what I was going to get in terms of, of his presentation. So he'd somebody, been somebody that was, had received his rehabilitation in, in a large uh, brain injury center. And he was coming home for the first time to receive rehabilitation. And I didn't know what the home environment was like. It was a very rural setting. And so, and he walked, he walked in and um, he was clearly frustrated, but he seemed to be motivated. So because it was a discrepancy between kind of what I was expecting from the, what I was reviewing and his presentation, which seemed to be higher functioning than I, than I thought it might be, uh, it really emphasized the importance of that client-centered assessment. And so I used the uh, Canadian Occupational Performance Measure and an occupational profile and tried to get a sense of, hey, who is this person? Where does he want to be going based on where he, where he is? And he, he did have uh, some balance issues. Uh, he still had some issues with memory. He, his speech was slurred. Uh, he was ha clearly having some, some issues with vision. And so we kind of went through through the different areas that he wanted to work on. And he was very adamant that he wanted to get be out on his own again. So he, But even there was so much... Um, tension within the family following his injury that the parents actually were, were separating. So it was just a lot of a lot of unknowns occurring at the environmentally at the same time as as um, as his recovery that were that were that were impacting his recovery. So so when we sat down, he wanted to go back to school. He wanted to get out, out on his own. Uh, he wanted to uh, he wanted to find a girlfriend. He wanted to he wanted to do the things that twenty one year olds want to do. So as we started to assess his, his impairments, you could clearly see where he was, he was quite a ways from being able to go back to school. And he was, as we started out, you could tell that, that his mood was starting to, to kind of uh, become affected. Uh, he wasn't diagnosed with depression, but he was, he was clearly having a hard time getting out of bed. He was having a hard time. He, he just hadn't been doing anything since, he, since he'd come home. And he'd be home for about, I don't know, three or four weeks. And so he was just... It, it, it was kind of like, is this what it's going to be? Is this? We clearly had things we needed to do from a motor standpoint. We clearly had things that we needed to do from a vision standpoint. I was very uh, cognizant of the psychosocial things that we needed to look at. So part of what we did 
was we we had a uh, a group that we put them in. So taking advantage of the evidence to to the benefits of group work around people's psychosocial well being. So uh, we put him we put him in a group where he could get support. He was he was getting support from people that weren't therapists. He was getting support from people that weren't family. It was very beneficial to him from an energy standpoint. We also immediately looked at things where we could look at increasing his activity level. So he was doing very little physical activity, pretty much just laying on the couch. And so just developing a graded activity program around the things that he wanted to do. He wants to go back to school. He wants to go, he wants to find a job. He wants to tying everything that he's doing to his goals. So why are we doing this, the physical activity program? Because these are the things that we need to do to get you back into shape, to be able to work getting a sense of the kind of jobs that he wanted and doing specific task simulation relative to those things so that he could see the connections between what we were doing, where we needed to go from there. And then uh, at, at the time that we were working with him, there was there was a um, some of the evidence from our prior practice guidelines was on peer mentoring and, and peer collaboration. So we, we had him um, doing some work-related things with other people that had had brain injury, where he, he was learning and, and seeing the successful outcomes that people were having. And so it was kind of a combination of skill building, goal-directed work. And then once we saw what where we were remediating versus where we needed to compensate, we started to bring in the technology pieces to facilitate his recovery. So as we approached returning to school, looking at how can we use technology to compensate for some of his visual acuity deficits, books on tape having note takers, like we often talk about students being able to express what their accommodations are, but one of the things occupational therapists are, are expert at is determining what accommodations people need. So actually looking at the different activities that he needed to do and teaching him how to be an advocate for himself. And then we, as we move forward, we, we progressed him into uh, a class at the local community college, a, kind of a less challenging more likely to be successful college class uh, and we where we could coach him a little bit in those classes, help him be successful, help him how to learn how to um, use the accommodations, use the technology that we were building in and then uh, and then just continuing to progress him uh, and the same as in the work environment. So we took a very uh, skills based coaching, uh, positive reinforcement mindset and also just cognitive behavior therapy, giving him you know challenging, challenging him, making him uh, anticipate uh, the successes that he was that he was going to deal with. And then when he would struggle with something, help him in terms of his problem solving to be able to uh, to deal with that. Because certainly when with the level of frustration tolerance he had, he was going to he was certainly going to struggle a lot with um, with failed experiences uh, in different settings. So so we, we just built the evidence in from from a lot of different areas, but also knowing where he is on the continuum. And that was, you know, where, where I eventually got him. He was, he was a little bit further along and, and the evidence that's in the practice guidelines is not just for acute injuries. It's evidence for people at different points in the progression. So knowing where people, somebody is, is really critical to that. That's such a, a wonderful example of, of applying evidence across, um, you know, someone's care continuum as, as you explained and how doing so in a client-centered manner um, can really just accelerate progression um, and, and positive outcomes for the people we work with. Um, I, I really appreciate that. 
Um, I, I think we've discussed uh, pretty extensively some of the implications that uh, the research included in these practice guidelines will will have for our listeners and and anyone who likes to who would like to uh, uh, read them. Um, I, I wanted to end the interview asking about some of the research uh, you're both a part of at West Virginia University. What additional resources related to your work there or to TBI in general, would you recommend to listeners? One of the things to remember that is, is that when you look at a, a at a practice guideline, so the, we have one that is done that that Matt you referenced at the beginning, and we have another one that we're working on now. Is just remembering that that that's a snapshot of evidence in within a defined period of time. So so even the most current guidelines when they come out will be through twenty twenty. So I, I would just encourage people to remember that it's just to always remember the importance of staying up to date on the evidence. So especially if you're somebody that, that works in, in brain injury, uh, things change a lot. Uh, new evidence comes out. And, and I think that one of the one of the things that, that clinicians can do to really stay current and to, and to really to be as exceptional as you can be in, in a very challenging uh, uh, clinical environment is to is to make sure that you're staying up to date on on the, on new evidence and also to be aware of evidence that that exists from the past. I mean, just if something's been done in previous guidelines, um, that that is still evidence to support the uh, the intervention. And sometimes what what we found when we did this particular practice guideline is there just weren't. In some areas, there just weren't new studies done, and that doesn't um, that doesn't mean that the old ones aren't aren't very good. So it's just making sure that you that when you look at practice guidelines and you're 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 trying to provide best practice that you're that you're uh, you try and be familiar with the the information that's available in our profession and other professions as well. Many of the many of the studies that we're looking at fall within occupational therapy scope of practice, but we're not done by occupational therapists. So just remember remembering the things that are that are relevant to our scope of practice. I love that. I love that. And the importance of interprofessional collaboration and, yeah. and evidence sharing yeah. um, where, where possible. Could you briefly describe uh, how your work at West Virginia University helps assure that individuals with a TBI have access to available services? Dr. Willer and I are both principal investigators and co-investigators of our state-funded TBI program in the ACL State Partnership Grant Program for West Virginia. And through those, we are able to develop programs and services, and uh, we also have a group of uh, resource uh, coordinators, uh, which are social workers, um, to help ensure that individuals who have a diagnosis of traumatic brain injury receive services. And I love that. Um, what, what could you say practitioners could do to, to help assure individuals in their own communities have access to, to services or or how could practitioners learn of, of their own uh, state funded programs if they want to contribute and, and be a part of those? We did a, uh, a needs assessment over the last few years, Matt, and we, we tried to, to look at the needs of people that have brain injury and, and their caregivers. But a third area that we included in this in this survey was the needs of practitioners and uh, West Virginia University is in a rural area, so we don't we don't have like a designated traumatic brain injury center in this state. So we often 
we use our, our, our rehabilitation hospitals, but, but even within that, there's a lot of outpatient providers and providers throughout the state that, that see people with traumatic brain injury. And so one of the things that they indicated on the needs assessment was the need for more brain injury specific information. So if you think about um, sometimes when, when clinicians work with lots of different diagnostic groups and you're thinking about how to use your professional development each year, you may decide to use your professional development on the conditions that you see the most if you're seeing everything. And that might not be traumatic brain injury. And so uh, yet yet it's very complex to work with. So so one of the concerns we were getting from our, our family members and our people with traumatic brain injury is that they were frustrated with the quality of the services. They felt like when they would when when they would go, and this isn't specific to occupational therapy, this is all healthcare services that they might that they might venture out and come into contact with. And so, so I think one of our commitments, Ann and I, is to be uh, is to be educators within the state. So we, she and I, are, are leading a uh, West Virginia Brain Injury Conference in, a, in in late March that has speakers from all kinds of different different uh, backgrounds and and um, and has a, a done this. This will be the third year that we've done it. Uh, last year we had a lived experience panel where people with chronic brain injury came on and talked about their journeys and, and frustrations and challenges and successes. And so, so really, I, I think for, to your, to your larger question about what can therapists do within their state is I think the first thing that, that they can do is get involved with their brain injury association. So every state has some sort of a brain injury association, brain injury program, get connected with them. OT, that's often the group that does advocacy work. It's often the group that uh, lobbies for services to be covered for certain things that might lobby a state uh, Medicaid waiver, for example. Those are the things that get occupational therapy to the table. That would be the one thing that I would recommend. And then the second thing is is become involved with them. And so certainly for Amanda and I, we've been really fortunate. We don't have a brain injury association within West Virginia. We have, we have a brain injury uh, program, and it's, it's a program that's funded through the state. And for Amanda and I, we've been fortunate to be the, the leaders of those, the principal investigators on those grants. And that has really uh, raised the profile of occupational therapy in the state of West Virginia, especially in the, in the area of traumatic brain injury, because we oversee the, the advisory board that's made up that has, that has physicians on it, that has insurance people on it, that has caregivers on it. It certainly allowed us to, to um, part of the, um, the development of the policies associated with it. What we would love to see is occupational therapists in states they work in get involved at those levels. And I've really been lucky to be on some different projects lately with some OTs from different states that are just incredible, uh, accomplishing more than way more than Amanda and I are. And so it so it happens, but but it certainly uh, I would love to see it happen on a much larger scale. Absolutely, there's so many skilled practitioners and and talented practitioners uh, with with knowledge and with experience that can really contribute to the improvement of, of health systems and, and the availability of services to people that really need it. I want to thank you both so much for your time and, and uh, for coming on the show today. It's time for our concluding segment, our golden nugget segment. If you could each share just one piece of advice or one recommendation with our listeners, what would it be? For me, I think it would be it would be not to look for a recipe book on OT and TBI. I get a lot of uh, I'll get emails from people or phone calls, and they'll and they'll 
give me a little scenario of something and say, what do you think I should do? And you, with traumatic brain injury, there, that's a dangerous ask because it, you have to understand who you're dealing with and what you're dealing with. And to ask someone who doesn't know that, um, a question is, is really, uh, is it's really difficult to answer. So, so what, what I would say is trust your skill set because the skill set that occupational therapists get is ideal for traumatic brain injury. Amanda and I are both educators and our students get frustrated of how much of the diversity of the classes they have to take. Like you're, you're in mental health class one minute, then you're in phys dis and then you're, then you're back and then you're doing cognition and then you're, so it, it can be more difficult than in some other professions where maybe your your um, the knowledge you're learning is more streamlined. But if you want to see the value of that diverse approach to knowledge acquisition, look no further than traumatic brain injury because you need all of that. And because we have all of that, it makes us particularly good in terms of working with, with people that have um, traumatic brain injuries of all Traumatic brain injury of all levels impacts occupational performance, and that's what and that's what we do. Just remember that you know client centeredness on an occupation based approach is evidence based in terms of and it's evidence supported in terms of um, its impact on uh, on successful rehabilitation. I love that. I love that. And, and how about you, Amanda? What's your golden nugget? Early in my career, you would hear things like you know recovery is the most or you get the most impact in like the first year um, with their. Um, so I guess the one piece of advice that I would have um, is to help them connect, help your client and the family connect the resources once they are discharged from that acute, that inpatient um, place. A lot of times families have lots of support. You have the family support. All the friends are there. Um, but when patients or clients with TBI start discharging home um, and they're, or discharging to a you know more post-acute facility, sometimes those resources go away. So if you are a practitioner, um, try to help them you know connect to community sources, whether it's support groups, um, whether it's the uh, brain injury programs that uh, Dr. Lola was talking about, because um, they may not always be able to get just occupational therapy interventions because their insurance may be out or they may not have the funds to do that. So look for other opportunities or other resources um, to help kind of keep them um, moving forward. Because um, nobody wants to just stay in one position, stay um, without moving forward. Um, and it'll help improve quality of life. So that's my last thoughts. Absolutely. Those are wonderful golden nuggets to end our interview on. Thank you again so much for your time and for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.